Hello, I'm Leon Pickering, a barrister at Tenon Square Chambers, and today I'm going to be looking at the new practice direction on vulnerable witnesses, which will apply to all civil cases from the 6th of April 2021. Whilst criminal and family courts have long dealt head on with the concept of vulnerable witnesses and how to help them give their best evidence, until now this has not been dealt with on an official level by the civil courts. Litigants and advocates have been left to deal with party and witness vulnerabilities on a case-by-case basis and in an ad hoc manner, often drawing on established practice in different courts or tribunals by analogy. Indeed, I can remember a case where I had to take it upon myself to propose ground rules to an opposing advocate, clear them with the judge at the counsel only hearing before cross-examining a witness with a learning disability. Without a clear framework in place, one of the issues can be the difficulties in explaining to your own clients why your cross-examination of the other side may have to take a particular form, but any cross-examination of them is not going to be so accommodating. The new Practice Direction 1A, which comes into force on the 6th of April 2021, goes some way to addressing these issues, though in certain respects it falls short of the more extensive guidance in other jurisdictions. What I want to do in this podcast is pick out some of the salient features of the new Practice Direction, as well as noting what it does not cover, before considering what might be best practice when assessing the vulnerability of witnesses and how to approach their evidence in the light of the new practice direction. By way of brief overview, practice direction 1A places an obligation on the courts to consider and identify the vulnerability of parties or witnesses at an early stage as part of the overriding objective. Where best evidence is likely to be diminished by a relevant factor, the court is empowered to make a finding that they have a vulnerability, make an order identifying the nature of the vulnerability and order appropriate provisions and or ground rules concerning the nature and extent of their evidence and the nature of any cross-examination. At the same time, the court needs to consider this in relation to parties and their ability to participate in the proceedings. Whilst the obligation is on the courts to do this, parties are, as often in these cases, under an obligation to assist in the process. This raises a number of issues. First, what factors are relevant when considering vulnerability? Second, when might a relevant factor adversely impact the ability of a party or witness to participate in proceedings or give best evidence? Third, how should this be recorded in an order Bearing in mind concerns about confidentiality, a party or witness's feelings, and any issues of consent when you have a non-party witness. Fourthly, what appropriate provisions can and should be made, and in what circumstances? And fifthly, when should ground rules be considered, and what ground rules should be established, and in what circumstances? So, taking those issues in turn... First, what are the relevant factors? So in the practice direction, vulnerability is drawn more widely than the approach in criminal proceedings. It is much closer to the approach currently taken in family proceedings. First, the court has to consider whether there are any relevant factors present. A non-exhaustive list is set out in paragraph four of the practice direction and includes both general and case-specific factors such as age, maturity, communication ability, literacy, learning difficulties, physical and mental health issues, social, domestic or cultural circumstances, and the impact of case-specific factors. Uh, For example, being a witness to a traumatic event relating to the case 
or aspects of their relationship with another party or witness, be that allegations of sexual assault, intimidation, harassment, etc. With the possible exception of expert witnesses, some of these factors are going to be relevant to pretty much every witness and party, assuming, of course, that the party is a, a living person rather than a company. Two, having identified those relevant factors, the court then needs to consider whether it might impact on a witness's best evidence or a party's participation in the proceedings. Relevant considerations are set out in paragraph five and include the ability to understand the proceedings, express themselves, put forward evidence, comply with court orders, instruct representatives and attend hearings. It is worth noting that this goes much beyond thinking about evidence. Many of these considerations relate to parties as opposed to witnesses and are going to be relevant to questions over capacity to litigate. However, the practice direction does not expressly envisage using this process to make decisions over capacity to litigate. In practice, this is going to be necessary in relevant cases. Third, recording vulnerability in an order. It is worth bearing in mind that an order made in public in civil proceedings can be accessed by non-parties without the permission of the court under CPR 5.4c. It does not carry the restrictions placed on witness statements, etc., in terms of being deployed in subsequent or even unrelated legal proceedings. A court order can be used as evidence without any restrictions. This has a number of consequences. To give an example, an unscrupulous litigant could trawl through previous or related proceedings in order to attempt to obtain what would otherwise be confidential medical information that might then be deployed to their advantage in separate proceedings. Alternatively, a relevant finding could be attained within the proceedings before any evidence has been properly considered. That might be particularly the case where a case involves issues of capacity, veracity, or undue influence over living parties in the litigation. This is not an issue that really arises in criminal or family proceedings. An order containing special measures in criminal proceedings will not identify the vulnerability in the way that this new practice direction envisages, and it cannot be accessed without applying to the judge to obtain it. Family proceedings are likely to be in private, so the order could not be obtained by a non-party. Great care should therefore be taken over recording the nature of a party or witness's vulnerabilities in a court order as envisaged by paragraph 7 of the new practice direction, particularly so when a vulnerability is directly relevant to issues in the proceedings and or where it is contested. Applying this overlay to cases involving litigants in person could add a further layer of complexity and difficulty. There is also a real risk that non-party witnesses could be put off giving evidence entirely if their medical conditions are to become publicly known. So there are some real issues with how the practice direction is drawn in this particular way. In my view, best practice will in many circumstances involve recording the nature of a vulnerability in as euphemistic a way as possible. So, for example, rather than recording that a witness has early stage vascular dementia, the order might simply record that they have a vulnerability, the nature of which means that pre-recording or pre-submitting questions would help them give their best evidence. 
Now, that would be reductive because the next part of the audit would go on to set out the relevant provisions, which would be pre-recording or pre-submitting questions, whichever was considered most appropriate. But it would satisfy the wording of the practice direction without revealing what may well be not widely known, normally confidential medical information. Other alternatives could include trying to convince a judge that it is in their discretion not to record the vulnerabilities and only mention the appropriate provisions to be used, or in appropriate cases, asking the judge to deal with any questions of vulnerability or special measures in private and to record them in a separate order, which cannot then be obtained under CPR 5.4c. What appropriate provisions are available? The practice direction does not define appropriate provisions, nor give any guidance as to what might be included. In practice, they will include all the special measures familiar to criminal and family practitioners, such as screens, live links, intermediaries, pre-recording, pre-agreed questions, questions being put by the judge rather than a party or an advocate, etc., etc. For further examples, see Rule 3A and Practice Direction 3AA of the Family Procedure Rules, which contain detailed examples and guidance that can be applied by analogy. However, such a shopping list has to come with two caveats. First, there does not appear to be any central fund set aside to pay for appropriate measures, as there is in criminal and some family proceedings. This means there may be issues with funding appropriate provisions and potential disputes over whether and in what way these costs might be borne by the parties. Secondly, many civil courts may simply lack the equipment to put in place appropriate provisions. This might necessitate applications to transfer proceedings to a court where the relevant provision is available. Such transfers are expressly contemplated in the family procedural rules, and it is unfortunate that they are not explicitly dealt with in the civil rules. Five, ground rules. Having identified a vulnerability and appropriate provisions, the court is to then go on to consider whether there should be appropriate ground rules covering the evidence of the witness and any cross-examination. Again, the practice direction does not give any examples of ground rules, but it is a broadly familiar concept that civil practitioners have tended to apply by analogy from criminal and family proceedings. Common ground rules include prohibiting tag or multi-part questions and or avoiding statement questions or closed questions. Detailed guidance is available from the Inns of Court College of Advocacy as well as the Advocates Gateway. In summary, the new practice direction is a welcome step toward a more formal and consistent approach to vulnerable witnesses and parties in civil proceedings. However, it raises a number of issues unique to civil proceedings, including questions over disclosure of medical conditions on publicly available orders, the impact on proceedings themselves of potentially relevant findings of fact made at an early stage, and the availability and funding of appropriate measures if a central fund is not established to support them. Thank you for listening. <laughs>